The parking lot spots next to the church were almost full, which meant that the Sabbath school already started. When somebody called pastor, pastor, and finally Vadim, now I realized someone was calling me. It was only a few weeks that I became the pastor of the church. I was still getting used to the name. Just a couple months before, if somebody said pastor, I immediately thought somebody looking for the real pastor of the church, the senior pastor, Pastor Bob Villanueva, who was my colleague. But he received a call to another church just a month prior, so now it was me. I walked into the office, and I saw a young man, blonde, blue eyes, standing there, he wasn't sure who I was, and maybe it was the thick Russian accent that threw him off. He said, oh, um, I talked to the pastor of this church, and they said, you're going to help me. I tried to realize that uh, when he talked, I asked, when, when did you talk to the pastor? And the young man said, um, just, just a few minutes ago. And the pastor said that they will help you with what? To get me home, the young man replied. His voice sounded so lovely, bouncy, like somebody spilled a bunch of ping pong balls. I was in a different mood because I was juggling my memories and trying to figure out what am I missing because I could not recall that I talked to anybody. He said, you, you're going to get me home, right? I was drawing blanks. I said, what church did you call? He said, the right church, the Adventist church. You immediately know that somebody says Adventist. They have no idea about Seventh-day Adventists. I was my mind was racing like a monkey in a banana tree. I tried to figure out, did I, did I drop a ball? Did I miss it? on all of this? It's like, I said, and what was the name of the pastor you talked to? He said, Pastor Howard. I'm not going to lie, I felt so relieved. I was not going crazy because... Deep in my mind, somehow deep inside, I knew I was not Pastor Howard. Unless something changed in just a few minutes since that morning, I was pretty sure that I was Vadim. We don't have Pastor Howard here. Now it was his turn to look puzzled. The, the, the light uh, grayish cloud came over his blue eyes. He was looking at me intently. He was about 5'10", blonde. I said, home, and where is home for you? Alabama. He looked fit. It, it sounded like he spent his Friday night, Friday nights under the lights in Alabama playing football. But he was young. He looked like he just graduated high school maybe a night before. I was still trying to figure out 
again, what church was that? Somebody walked in the office, I turned and said, do you know Pastor Howard? And said, of course I know Pastor Howard. Pastor Howard is the senior pastor of Fifth Avenue Church in Paris, California. We were in Valley Seventh-day Avenue Church in Menifee, California. I said, oh, you're in the wrong church. Oh, uh, you're in the right church. You're in the wrong ch- I, He was really confused. I said, okay, never mind. Let me call Pastor Howard. I called Pastor Howard, and I said, here's the young man. Talk to you. He said, you're going to help him to get home to Alabama. And Pastor Howard said, no problem. Bring him over. And I did the most compassionate thing that I can do, that any good pastor and a caring person would do. I offered to give him a ride to Paris. I still cringe thinking about it, how almost happy it felt that I realized that this young man was not my responsibility. Almost giddy, I jumped in the car and drove him. And in about 30 minutes, even less, of a drive, I received probably the greatest lesson about which I still have a mixed feelings, feeling deeply ashamed, but at the same time so grateful. When we walked in, Chris was greeted with a great smile. The bass voucher was already on the pastor's desk. He was offered a meal and a ride to the Greyhound station. Everything happened so quick, I couldn't understand because normally when you help somebody, you have to ask. I don't know about you, but I always wonder, is that a legitimate need? Aren't you supposed to check an ID? Aren't you supposed to verify the address, call, all of this that you have to do, but at the moment, Pastor Howard did none of those things. It's just the smile warm welcome and the real help. Chris was giving two $20 bills just for the meal to get home. The memory of that day perhaps is going to stay with me for the rest of my ministry life. And every time I hear somebody says, Pastor, I remember Chris's face and Pastor Howard's smile. in reading the story of the Good Samaritan that we hear in one of the Luke's stories that we read today. I find myself on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, only on the wrong side of the road. The legal expert, the lawyer, we find in many translations, Most likely, it was someone who became a professional theologian, a person who gets paid to read the Bible. This is the best of the jobs. You sit in the basement of the library and just read in every possible language and the version you can find, and you read everything that's being said about it. And you focus and you interpret, and the main The main task is how to translate what you read, how to interpret. Theologian used this fancy word, hermeneutics. It just means, simply means 
how to read. So this is the guy who knew the scripture as the back of his hand. It wasn't uncommon for theologians at the time, for rabbis, for teachers, to memorize the scripture. Most likely, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, was memorized. They can recite it any time you wake up from sleep. They can tell you exactly the chapter, the verse, and they can recite the scripture. That's why to answer the scriptural question for him was not an option. Why he came to Jesus in what he was asking We're not sure what motivated him. Just Luke says that he was testing. Not sure what he was testing. Is it Jesus' knowledge or Jesus' ability to measure up to interpretive, to the sort of scholarly level of Scripture reading? He's trying to test Jesus. In a good fashion of the tradition of the religious Jewish debate, when you ask a question, you're supposed to answer the question with with another question. Rabbis never talk straight. It's always the question over the question. So when Jesus is asked, he kind of turns the conversation around and says, so, and what does the scripture say? Of course, the legal expert knows the scripture back and forth. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6.5. He quotes from Leviticus 19.18 because it's easy for him, love your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. What else to talk about? The end of the conversation. Seemingly, that would be the end of the conversation if the legal expert was indeed interested in finding the answers, but there was something more. I think he was searching for something else in trying to get the power, get the initiative in the conversation back. He turns it around, and of course, he has to answer the question with a question, and here comes the question. And who is my neighbor? Who is worth my love? Who am I supposed to love as myself? Who is worthy of that? We don't know if he felt proud of his question. We don't know what he was really looking for, or do we? Because Jesus about to answer it, but not the way that one would expect. He plucks this theologian out of the bookish, abstract understanding and a desire to read the Bible, and plops him right into the thick of human reality on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, the avenue from Jericho to Jerusalem is this very special road because, as you know, the Jerusalem and the temple particularly was not only a, um, a place of important spiritual pilgrimage. Also, every person traveling to Jerusalem would bring two things. They would bring, of course, um, offerings and people who would bring the um, animals for offering. They cannot bring their cattle and the sheep. It goes. They would bring money to buy that when they get to Jerusalem. But they would also bring something else something that every one of us is going to be doing on April 15. They will bring their taxes to the temple. So you can imagine that um, people who are traveling to Jerusalem, they are actually carrying cash. 
How about people who come from Jerusalem? Who would be coming from Jerusalem? In addition to people who went there for pilgrimage, it would be religious people, professionals, who get paid to work in a temple. Levites, the tribe of Levites, and the priests come out of Levites, where the tribe, there are actually 13 tribes in Israel, Levites were only allowed to work in one place, in one place only, and that was the temple. Of course, there were a lot of Levites and only one temple, so how did they manage? There was very rigid schedules, and every Levite would go and work for a few days, for a few weeks, for a few months, whatever the schedule was, and that, and that would be enough to provide for them leaving, or at least partially, and they would come back. So when common folk would go to Jerusalem carrying their offering money and their tax money, Levites and the priests would be coming back from Jerusalem carrying their pay purses. That was their entire livelihood and living. That, would, that was resources they would provide for their families. So this, as you can imagine, that road, I would go on a limb and guess it was very, very lucrative robbery business there. Because you can just stand and you know if the people going up or down are going to be loaded with money. Almost pretty much everyone you can hit. This is not just any road. This is the road that reflects the reality of human life. And now, this poor man, and the Bible says that, Luke says that he was traveling from Jerusalem. He was probably already gave his tithes and probably gave this offering and didn't have much on him. And maybe that is why whoever tried to rope, uh, rob him beat him up because they got frustrated. They even took his clothes because he had not much to give. He was coming back and he was laying in the ditch, half dead. What does it mean to be half dead? I'm going to ask you a question. Please don't answer me with the question. <laughs> what is the difference between half dead and half alive? I've learned through my pastoral ministry that sometimes when you come from a tough day at work and there are some arguments, there are some things, the, the, the Contractors didn't put something right, didn't paint the right color the wall, and it's frustrating. You come home, my wife asks me, how are you doing? And I answer, I'm half dead. When I come home and everything went well, but I'm tired, but it was a busy day, but I'm in a good mood, I answer, I'm half alive. I turn to my wife and ask him, how are you doing? She spends all the day attending to two teenagers. You can guess the answer every single day. But the notion of death on a serious note here is very important. And I think Luke intentionally, and he's being a physician, he probably knows the difference between half dead and half alive. But somehow he mentions that this man was close to death. In the Jewish tradition, being close to death meant to be almost or being actually dead. Because close to death 
meant that you are untouchable. That explains why women going through a monthly periods were untouchable, not supposed to be in public, and after giving birth, because in the ancient tradition, giving birth was the condition that a human being can get closest to being dead, because you're losing so much blood. So that's why you had to go through the period of purification. If you give birth to a boy, it's 40 days. If it's a female, to 80 days. Being dead was not a joke. It was a serious religious matter. You stay away from people who are dead. And now, religious people travel on this road. Why did Jesus have to tell the story mentioning the priest and a Levite? Wouldn't it be enough just to say a priest or a Levite, one or the other, because most likely the priest was a Levite. What was the point of doubling on this? Perhaps the explanation comes if we peruse through some of the pages of the Hebrew Bible, we find, for instance, in the Second Corinthians verses 34-30, when um, the author of, 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 of Chronicles, I said Corinthians, the author of Chronicles gives the description of what is happening in the Jewish nation. This is what he says. Then the king went up to the Lord's temple together with all the people of Judah and all the citizens of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites and all the people, young and old alike. There the king read out loud all the words of the covenant scroll that had been found in the Lord's temple. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 13, on the second day, the heads of the families of all the people along with the priests and the Levites gathered together around Ezra and the scribe in order to, Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the instruction. When the biblical authors wanted to give a picture of the entireness of the entire, of, of the whole nation, they would give the description when they wanted to say who was there, they wanted to say everyone. And they wanted to say everyone was there. They would say there were priests, there were Levites, and there were people. It meant, it meant all the tribes, all the people. Maybe, just maybe, what Jesus is telling in this parable, that he wants to put the entire nation of Israel on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. What if it's not by incident? What if this becomes the metaphor of what is happening in a religious and social life in the ancient time? When common folk find themselves in the ditch of human existence, suffering, bleeding, and the religious professionals, priests and Levites, people who are responsible for taking care of those who are in need, they're so preoccupied with keeping with their religious rituals and doing and reading the law, doing these hermeneutical things, talking a lot about the meaning, but they don't get out of their library basements. Jesus wants us to see what's happening on a highway of the human reality. And now, the religious leaders, for all the right reasons, are not going to touch the guy in the ditch. 
because they're not supposed to. Their law, their, their doctrines, and their belief system tells them stay absolutely away. They were doing the right thing when they crossed on the other side of the road. They were doing the right thing going to church on the right day. They were paying their tithe diligently. They were doing the right thing studying the scripture passionately, interpreting the prophecies accurately. However, the impact of the religious leaders in this parable on maybe in the reality on the lives of common folk was that the best they could do is to cross on the other side of the road, move into a gated community, maybe build a wall, and think and pray of themselves narcissistically, thanking God for being chosen and priding themselves for being special and closer than anybody else to God. Their religiosity became detriment to the mission, to the mission that were given from the beginning, to the chosenness that meant not exclusivity, but a responsibility to embody God's love and mercy for humanity. Religious people failed on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And who is left? If people are laying in the ditch, cannot help themselves, and religious people decide to go on the other side not to do anything with the people who suffer, who is left to help? Out of nowhere, Jesus brings a Samaritan. Samaritan, and you could say, well, he just used it as a kind of cute way of putting and putting someone who is not um, like anybody else there. Jesus had a personal encounter with Samaritans. Just in the previous chapter of Luke, in Luke chapter 9, right before the chapter where the parable of the Good Samaritan is told, Jesus goes into Samaritan village, verses 52, 59, Luke chapter 9. He sent messengers on ahead of him. Along the way, they entered a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the Samaritan villagers refused to welcome him because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. As soon as Samaritans heard where he was going, they didn't want anything to do with him. Samaritans. Samaritans, those are the people who did something horrible to Jewish people. One day they decided to defile the temple. They brought the bones of the dead people and scattered it all around the Jerusalem temple to bring pieces of death into the temple. Remember, the tradition was you cannot even touch anything that has to do with death. I wonder if Jesus wanted to bring a little bit of irony into this story, just saying that the very people who thought defiled the temple, bringing death. Now is this person is touching the one who is half dead. 
Jesus does not have a rosy picture about Samaritans. He is not trying to idealize them or sugarcoated their reality. He just treats each person for who she or he is. And this has just happened to be a Samaritan who travels. Jews paid their dues because they would never refer to Samaritans other than calling them dogs. Here, an outsider, a foreigner, a person with a strong accent and a different value system chooses to stop and save the unfortunate half-dead Jew. The priest and the Levi saw the problem. They realized the depth and the seriousness of the situation. And according to the law, for all the good reasons, they decided not only not touch the guy, but just to avoid even an accident. What if he jumps up and touches them accidentally? They cross on the other side of the road. They were concerned about their purity, which in their mind was their primary religious responsibility, to keep themselves pure. And it seems like on this road to the holy city, it is not only the direction that matters, but also which side of the road that we choose to be on. Because the side of the road might eventually determine where we're going to arrive. The priest and the Levite are going to disappear in the obscurity of history. But the Good Samaritan became of exemplar, of selfish compassion and love for a neighbor. There were plenty of good reasons for not stopping and reach out and to touch bleeding wounds. But when we stop, we find the ultimate reason to live. Martin Luther King Jr. commented on this parable with these wonderful words. I imagine that the first question which the priest and the Levi asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But by the very nature of his concern, the Good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Finishing this story, Jesus wanted to make sure that we realize that what Samaritan did was not just, an act of, was not just a random act of kindness. Because he did not only help him at the moment he brought him to the inn, and on the next day, he leaves a blank check for continuing care. Helping someone is not only one time. It is what Martin Luther King calls dangerous altruism. When you almost don't think about the consequences for yourself, or in fact, you don't even think about yourself at the moment. To make sure that Samaritan shows even that kind of care, he makes sure that the money left, which means the story does not end, which means the Samaritan was going to continue to care for the one who was in need. 
one of the prominent philosophers of the second half of the 20th century, Manuel Levinas, a Jewish believer, offered a great definition of faith, which I think somehow implied in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Levinas put it in these words. Faith is not a question of the existence or non-existence of God. It is believing that love without reward is valuable. This is why I think this familiar, well familiar story is important for us today. If we simply try to find the interpretation of what this parable means, we're going to be no different from the lawyer who came and asked, what shall I do? To ask for another interpretation or abstract theological speculation or these hermeneutical moves would not really make us a lot different. I think the parable encourages us to think and to move from what to who. The legal expert asks what needs to be done. Who is worthy of being my neighbor? And Jesus turns that question and says, who are you as a neighbor? Apparently, the stairway to heaven, this great vision that we have of people going up and down to heaven, this is not a red carpet of self-righteousness. I wonder if after hearing this story, the law expert was not just compelled to learn more about nuances of hermeneutics. Or he wanted to go back and study more about Samaritans, hoping to find, maybe I'll find something that I can love them for. Although it would be maybe not a bad thing to do. I'm pretty sure he left intently looking deep inside, like a shepherd looking for a lost sheep or a widow searching for a coin, or the father looking for the lost son. The expert was looking for the lost self. The self that can live loving without seeking any reward or gratification. And this is the story Maybe another story of the lost, the lost self. And I wonder if the lawyer realizes that it's not the, the law that needs to be interpreted. The law, instead of being an object, becomes the subject. The Word of God now interprets him revealing of who he was and he and who he needed to find. Maybe this is what it means to live the eternal life, to live learning to love to no end. And the good news is for us today that our Lord offered us this kind of love. Of course, this proposition cannot be proven right just by studying in a library basement or in a hipster coffee shop, in an academic or political office. 
the answer, the answer how to find yourself lies somewhere in the middle of that road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And every time I hear someone calls me pastor, I'm back there again, realizing that that road has two sides, only two sides. Amen.